Welcome to Team Peds Talks, newest series focused on nurse practitioner leadership and career development, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, or NAPNAP, an organization of experts in pediatrics and advocates for children. Thank you for joining us today for our episode. This series of podcasts includes conversations with expert leaders in pediatric healthcare with a focus on advancing career development and leading change. I am your host, Dr. Andrea Klein-Tilford, NAPNAP's Executive Board President. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner, nurse practitioner director at CS Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and a mother of two children. Greetings. I am so proud to be joined today by two pediatric nurse practitioner experts on children's environmental health issues and their impact on child health and wellness, Dr. Mary Chesney and Dr. Karen Duderstadt. This is such an important topic and one that requires more awareness and emphasis as we advocate for the health of current and future children all around the globe. These two esteemed colleagues, are the editors of the recently published special issue of the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare on Planetary Health, Environmental Justice, and Child Health. If you've not had a chance, I encourage all listeners to check out the January-February 2022 special issue of the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare. It is such a pleasure to be joined today by both of you. I'd like to start out with asking each of them to tell us a little bit about themselves. So let's go ahead and start with Dr. Mary Chesney. Hi, Andrea. It's such a pleasure to be with you and Karen today. I have loved being a pediatric nurse practitioner for the past 41 years. Uh, Currently, I'm a clinical professor at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing, where I work primarily with our doctor of nursing practice students. My passion lies in teaching students about health policy and advocacy regarding children's health and APRN practice issues. And certainly climate change and environmental health issues are among the most existential of these policy issues right now. And I am intensely focused upon them. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Chesney. Dr. Studerstadt, how about if you tell us a little bit about uh, about your, your path and your professional experience? Thank you, Andrea. I really also want to thank you for having us uh, today to discuss the special issue. We're very pleased to have this opportunity to talk about with NAPNAP members. So I'm currently a clinical professor emerita at the University of California, San Francisco in the Department of Family Healthcare and Nursing. I retired right before, right, right as COVID started, which I felt was very good timing, um, not only from my teaching position, but for also from my clinical, my longtime clinical position at our children's hospital here, our children's health center, I should say, here in San Francisco at the county hospital. And I have continued to teach, of course, and do some writing, some other projects, including environmental health projects over the past year and a half. So I actually have been working in, in children's environmental health issues over several years. And I had some very early involvement with the Children's Environmental Health Network. Some of you that are listening may be familiar with that. The website is cehn.org. And uh, it was actually founded here in the Bay Area in Oakland and then moved to Washington DC many years ago. And there is there are excellent, um, they have an excellent organizational uh, structure. They have an excellent website. And also there's lots of resources for nurses uh, and nurse practitioners on their site, as well as webinars if, for more learning. And I also have been uh, working 
with the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. Mary mentioned this as well. And that's been over the past decade. I was one of the founding members of that organization. I've also been on the national board with the organization. And certainly those on the East Coast particularly may be familiar with their work and they have a strong voice in Washington and have been influential in recent environmental health policy. And then lastly, I have presented at NAPNAP on, uh, on a number of children's environmental health issues, including uh, chemical hazards that impact children and climate change and extreme weather events. This was actually several years ago with my colleague, Pat Jackson Allen, and, and that impact uh, the extreme weather events and the impacts on children and families. And fortunately, I've had the opportunity to publish in JPHC, our journal on several uh, environmental health policy issues. As, as you can tell, Andrea, Karen has been at this work much longer than I. <laughs> um, she, she, in fact, I have learned a lot from Karen. Um, so it was such a, a joy to be able to co be co-editor with her on this special edition um, of our journal. Several factors for me caused me to begin policy and advocacy work in this environmental space over the past three to four years. Um, first, I found out I was going to become a grandmother, and I started to just intensely read a lot about the detrimental prenatal environmental exposures um, and concerns while my two daughters were pregnant. And then again, since the birth of my first two little granddaughters and now a grandson, um, I continue to read everything I can get my hands on with regard to all the concerns I have about um, sort of in the United States as compared to Europe are very lax um, chemical policies with regard to protecting children from toxic chemicals and um, just the concern about climate change and the world that we're leaving our children. Um, I'm really excited um, about the fact that in our upcoming uh, special edition of the journal, Katie Huffling, who happens to be the executive director right now of the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environment and her colleague contributed just a, a, an excellent review article that really uh, talks about all of the harms to children caused by toxic chemical exposure. Um, I have to say too, another moment for me that kind of got me really on this bandwagon was attending NAPNAP's National Conference in New Orleans and hearing um, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's just really impactful presentation um, about her experience as being the whistleblower in Flint, Michigan, the pediatrician that stood against all the people who were naysaying her in, in government and talking about the lead in the water crisis um, in Flint. And I just found her to be really inspiring and that really uh, just was another kind of nudge to say we as pediatric health care people have to get involved in this space and we have to advocate for children. And I think the last issue for me was in the last three to four years, um, I have a colleague at the School of Nursing, Dr. Teddy Potter, who introduced me to the concept of planetary health, which is really about the fact that our ex existential existence um, is dependent upon the earth having um, a healthy, thriving ecosystem and, and natural resources that can be shared by everyone. Um, and, and how impactful that is on our health and well-being, and as I said, just our existence, uh, period. So um, that got me very interested, and I continue to be interested. So again, it was just such a pleasure to work with Karen and to collaborate on this special edition, and I'm very excited about all the articles that I think are going to be really helpful for our, our membership. Well, that is really inspirational, Mary, and... Um, uh, let's hear from you, Karen. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first began working in children's environmental health and issues surrounding uh, children's environmental health? 
Well, I think that um, I talked about that initially in, in the, the opening. And I think um, what I'm currently working on, I think, which is the biggest threat to, to children's health associated with climate change, is our issues here in, Western, in the Western states. <clears throat> and here in the Western states and in California, we've had historic wildfires that has just impacted our air quality, not only in the state, which I think is most interesting, but the entire nation became very aware of the issues over the past three years in the Western states and particularly in California with wildfires and the impact on, um, on air quality. And I think the wildfires have been due, of course, we know to the historic droughts in the, in the West and not only in California, but throughout the Western states, as well as our changing weather patterns. I, I know uh, right before this podcast, the, the many states um, incurred incredible damage and uh, destruction from the recent uh, series of tornadoes that went through the, the, uh, the states. And uh, we're certainly thinking of all of our colleagues and our um, children and families in those areas. But these extreme wildfires and the, the extreme weather events have been associated with, with a significant loss of property and livelihoods causing displacement of children and families in so many states. And this is an economic issue for us that's related to housing and food insecurity. So this just broadens our population as providers that we work with that really have had incredible disruptions and trauma to their life, uh, are impacted by you know, childhood trauma and others. And this can be lifelong in terms of some individuals who really experience loss or trauma. So I think this does, it's, it's an awakening call for all of us to really think about individually how we can contribute to change and what we can do on our own local communities and start there with limiting um, our impact on uh, emissions and our use of, of the earth essentially. So I also think we've had some very recent um, examples in the Glasgow, Glasgow summit and that was international and there was a lot of news that came out on that. So overall, we've had a very slow adaptation of global nations, not just in the US, to really commit to limiting use of, of those things that we know in, in contribute to, to carbon emissions, both coal and fossil fuels. And they are directly contributed to our CO, CO2 level. You know, we, again, with the recent Glasgow summit, we've had, um, they came closer to our goal of reducing and, and impacting our national and global policies on this, but there's more work to do. Um, it didn't go quite far enough. So I think more global advocacy, national, local state advocacy needs to occur for us to meet the necessary goals to really limit the damage to our planet over the next two decades. Thank you very much. So these are a lot of threats that are happening around us. And uh, some of them, you know, we just don't see, if you will, or they don't seem as tangible. And so I think that sometimes um, that makes it sometimes harder for, you know, folks to uh, realize its importance. So based on some of these threats, what should we be doing differently in our clinical practice? Are there kinds of screenings that we should be doing for children? You know, I'll uh, jump in here uh, for this question. Um, I think a, a number of things. Um, one is, I, as Karen talked about, I, I really am concerned about um, climate change in particular. And I think we've talked for many years about environmental issues and about the future and about trying to save the planet for the future. And I think if I had one message for our listeners, it'd be the future is now. Um, we are experiencing these things now. And, and, and at a really frightening pace, in, in fact, the, the amount of uh, climate change that's occurred in all of the different events, as Karen talked about, um, natural disasters and the wildfires and the things that are displacing families and, and children. So I think that's 
that's one message. And I think we need to be sharing that with families um, to some extent, um, certainly not to frighten our, our pediatric patients, but to um, you know, really be, I think finding out first of all, you know, where do they live? Um, I think another issue that I really wanna highlight, and I think we talk about in a number of articles in the uh, special edition journal or issue, is the fact that um, in the way that climate and the way that environmental degradation impacts children varies. And it varies in the world depending on whether you come for a, from a poor or a rich country. And it depends on whether you're a child living in a zip code that's associated with poverty, um, a prior redlining that occurred back in the 30s. Um, uh, so I think, I think that we need to be aware as we're seeing families in the clinic about the environmental disparities there are with exposures to environmental toxins, to bad air quality, to poor water sources, and really be thinking about the clients that we serve, the zip codes in which they live. And that should raise, I think, um, concern for us when we know that a family likely is living in an area where their children will bear a greater burden of the effects of climate change um, and environmental toxins compared to some children in our country. Um, as far as some of the screenings, uh, you know, it's, it's the simple things. I think one is to find out, you know, do families have well water, all the things we've been doing, but I mean, well water or municipal water, helping them understand where they can find out municipal water quality data and making sure that they're getting their wells tested. Um, because we know there are a number of toxins that have been found in, in wells in terms of really bad toxic, um, you know, deadly chemicals. Um, I think that we should be asking families about their use of various chemicals and things like pe pesticides in the home and outside of the home. You know, many of our children live in areas that maybe are living in apartments where landlords just come in and, and spray chemicals. And sometimes the families aren't even aware of what else being used. So I think to raise that awareness and, and then to think about how we protect children and to know where do they go to school and where do they, um, what neighborhood do they live in and what is the air quality in that area. Um, I think we can be asking questions about those kinds of things. I think we need to start thinking about screening as to parental occupation. Um, you know, do we have people that are working in factories where their moms or dads are bringing home things on their clothing that might be bringing elements, trace elements of toxic chemicals into the home. And so how to help families think of problem solve that and think about how they protect their children. Um, I also really encourage um, pediatric focused MPs to be asking families more information about, you know, are they in a rural area? Are they in an agricultural area? Uh, what about pesticides being used in lands that are, might be quite adjacent to where, where they're actually living? Um, and so I think those are all, all issues that we need to, to think about. And then I think we need to be beginning to think about anticipatory guidance with families with regard to protecting children from extreme heat. You know, some of the children living in areas that we're seeing really in, intense heat issues. You know, how do we bring them to safe spaces if you don't have air conditioning? How do you keep them out of the hot sun? Um, how do you protect them from extreme cold? You know, what are the lead poisoning prevention issues you need to do in your home? So I, I think there are a number of things that we need to get more savvy about um, in, in assessing our families. That's terrific. Thank you so much, Dr. Chesney. So when thinking of all of that, um, how can we best engage our patients and families about potential environmental and climate change risks? Is it mostly education or are there other strategies we can use to increase patient and family awareness? Well, 
I'll, I'll take that uh, first, Mary. And I, a couple of things I wanted to follow up on with what Mary's previous discussion. And, you know, I do think there's a, many ways that we can help providers and families to really be aware of, of some of the, the threats that they're experiencing and how they can limit those. You know, air quality and levels of particulate matter in the air, we know that they're particularly harmful to children's lungs, particularly children's lungs that are developing and, and to the fetus for pregnant women. So I do think that air quality affects all those exposed high levels of particulate matter, adults and children, both rurally and in metropolitan areas. So there's different threats that we have depending on where we live in the, in the state. And I think that one of the things that many of us have become aware of on the West Coast with the wildfires is the uh, purple air, purpleair.com site. And if you haven't heard of that, of course, we'll be listing several of these resources for you as we post the podcast. The Purple Air is incredibly important for everyone, everyone that has a phone, and that's almost all of us, uh, that they can go to purpleair.com and get a sense of the air quality in their area. This is particularly important for providers because they, they can make their families aware of this. And for those children that have asthma and adults and for pregnant women, it's important on certain days, if possible, we understand this is not always possible, but if it allows them to have less, less time outside um, and less time that they will be impacted by the articulate matter. Uh, indoor air quality is another issue, but I'm talking about outdoor air quality. So making uh, providers and families aware of this, it'd be very helpful to limit children's um, exposure. And I think as we become more aware of this, we realize that it is possible to limit uh, asthma exacerbations, you know, with the number of steroidal inhalers that we use on children, a lot of times we use those for exacerbations, but we can limit those exacerbations of asthma and also limit our ED visits. That's an improved outcome for that child and family and, and less trauma for a child who has difficulty breathing. So I think that's one step we can take. Um, I think the other step, and again, this is a broader advocacy step, and I know that not all people can, can do this and don't have the time, but certainly for our providers and nurse practitioners listening, you know, I think the other uh, issue Mary talked about is water quality. And I do think we have an opportunity in, in the areas, particularly with a lot of drilling and fracking, to really um, get involved locally because many of the decisions on these fracking permits and the oil drilling permits are made in the county, at the county level. It's not made nationally, it's at the county level. And I've been active here in California in advocating in counties where there's extreme exposure for children, not only at fracking sites, which impacts water quality, but also the drilling sites. And over the years, there's not really even been a setback from schools and active community playgrounds for oil drilling or fracking sites. So we have many examples here on the West Coast of photos we've taken of children playing in the playground with either the drilling, with several drilling sites or fracking runoff in the background. And that's not safe for any of our children and our public, public schools serve all of our children. So I think we really need to be aware in our own communities, look around us, realize what's causing some of the issues that we have and really begin to, to as providers particularly, um, educate ourselves and become involved. Uh, it's an uphill battle. You'll have to have patience to do advocacy and policy issues, but this impacts your own individual family, your patients and families and your community. And that's where we all need to start. Um, so I think those are really important issues. One other thing I wanted to bring up in terms of Mary's discussion is about provider screening for uh, even vector-borne diseases. That's mm -hmm. one thing that we haven't discussed yet. And there's some excellent information in the special issue written by two of the authors, uh, Martha Fuller for one of them, Dr. Martha Fuller from San Diego. And uh, they address the issues of how our vector-borne diseases are 
you know, changing and in terms of where they occur, whether it's malaria, Zynga, we had a very good example in the past three or four years of Zynga and how that impacted children and families and particularly unborn, the unborn child. Um, and I think that we need to be aware of that in our communities when we have a febrile illness to begin to think about screening, what could have been caused of this? What is the season? What does our public health department say? What does the CDC say about where these vector-borne diseases are occurring? It can be hantavirus, or it could be a number of other viruses, depending on where you live in the East Coast, West, the South, the Midwest. So we're starting to see these. And I, as we've been talking about with climate change and extreme weather patterns, this is going to bring in for providers that what's needed for all of us is an increased awareness of our vector-borne diseases. So when we have fever present again, be aware of the range of causes. If your normal treatments don't work, be aware of the range of causes that this could have brought into your community, either from weather patterns or from seasonal change. So I think that's a really important one for me. You know, Karen, I, I will, I agree with all that you said, of course. And, uh, and I would like to also add, I think when safe, I mean, clearly, you know, as Karen was talking about, we have to be aware of air quality and where children are and what their, what their opportunities are. When possible though, I think we really need to encourage our families to get children out in nature. And I say that not only for all of the health and well-being um, benefits that come from being in nature that, that have been well studied in the literature um, and well researched. I, I think the other, the other issue is that um, more recently studies are really showing a strong connection between children who spend lots of time loving the outdoors and being outside as becoming better advocates for the environment, more likely to be good stewards um, of their use of natural resources and, and much more willing to fight for um, the, the natural beauty that we have around us. So I think, I think that's something that we can do and when safe and where safe, and I realize that doesn't apply always to all of our populations, um, you know, getting them to think about how they personally can move away from, um, you know, modes of transportation that use fossil fuels, you know, get our families out walking more when they can, biking more, um, you know, reducing plastics. And then the last thing I, I think too is, you know, we talk about how to get our families engaged. I think our healthcare system has to get engaged. There are a number of initiatives right now. There's the Nurses Drawdown, which is really looking at nurses making their own personal commitment that both in the workspace and at home, that they're going to, you know, uh, do things that will reduce their carbon footprint. But I know too, that there's a whole hospital-based initiative going on to really explore our use of plastics and our just, you know, extreme waste of stuff that happens in the healthcare sector that's also contributing to our issue with you know the stacking up of plastics and and also our carbon footprint so I would say too we can't just pass this on as something our families need to do I think we as providers and we as a healthcare system have to stay committed to saying what are we going to do um, to reduce our carbon footprint Karen, did you have something to say? You look like you have something to say to that. <laughs> yes, I, I just like to follow up on that for the listeners and for providers. I think um, the, the movement called Greening Hospitals, greenhospitals.com, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you'll find that that is a tremendous source for all of us, for those in clinical yes. settings, in tertiary centers, acute care nurse practitioners, primary care nurse practitioners, depending on if they work in specialty clinic or whatever. That, that is a really important first step. And when I first went on this site, I, I think so many of us are guilty of some of the things that's talked about on this site that we weren't aware of in our practice. A lot of our single use items that in, in decades past were not single use items. And we wonder why we're having a problem with our plastic uh, refuse over time. So the Green Hospitals is a great site. We'll make these uh, links available to you after the, the podcast and also healthcare without harm. 
This is an easy one to remember. That, that has been around for more than a decade, that organization. And they actually have um, an excellent resource and webinars for providers that they could use in meetings or other kinds of um, opportunities for self-learning or podcast that are very helpful for you as a provider to be an advocate. It, it may not be the most popular thing, but you'll be working not only to save the, the environment for your children and families, but for all those that you serve and for the next generation. So I think both of those sites, we as providers need to become aware, um, take it in, uh, learn, and begin to change our everyday habits because at every level of society, whoever we are, small changes that we make cumulatively will make a difference. And we know that from other issues that we've worked on. Um, and one other follow-up point from Mary's discussion, which I think is very helpful, is what we found during COVID, it was said, it's been such a difficult, long couple of years for all of us and what we experienced with the shutdowns, particularly there are strict shutdowns here on the part of the West Coast, was that a lot of our families were able to get outside and actually the use of our national public parks went up dramatically during COVID. And people had time, fathers had time, mothers had time, grandparents had time to really be together if they were their own little pod, depending on what their health and wellness part was. Um, and that was a boon for some families. I know other families were very impacted by COVID in terms of loss. And that's something that we all experienced in either a, a family member or certainly colleagues or others that, that were first responders in this and in this, in this um, epidemic. But I do think over time, that's one of the things that was uh, and will be hopeless, um, an activity that will be continued by some children and families that occurred during COVID. Well, this is such a fascinating discussion. I know I am learning a lot today. If you could leave our listeners with a piece of advice on a change they can make in either their clinical practice or daily lives to impact change on planetary health, what would that piece of advice be? Mary, do you want me to start? Or? Sure, Karen, you, you go for it. <laughs> well, I think as we've talked about uh, so far today, all change starts locally. And so it is important to increase awareness of issues that affect every individual, every provider in our own community, the county level. And we mentioned about those decisions that are made at the county level that impact air quality, the state and certainly beyond. But with, I think with our extreme weather events, all of us are becoming much more aware of the impact that we have on our environment and how it's impacting our daily lives. And it, it brings us to that decision of how can we personally in our short-term and long-term um, daily lives to begin to, to change the, the, the things that we know impact uh, the, the planet. Certainly our carbon emissions and our consumer products and all of us contribute to this. So I think um, it's up to all of us individually as providers to advocate for improved public policy and limit the impact on climate change. And I can say a few things that are difficult to do, but is possible for all of us is just to limit our use of, sing of single use plastic. Mm -hmm. You know, This is something that all of us can make a decision. In our meetings, we can make a decision to use disposable paper water glasses and, and you know, a water container. There's so many things that we can do on a regular basis to limit it, whether it's our clinical setting, our um, personal home setting, or our, our process of how we use consumer products. So I think for me, that's been a challenging change, but one that I was able to personally make very recently. So, you know, to reuse reusable um, water bottles and also reusable coffee mugs. 
Um, we all love our tea and coffee and we love our hot drinks, but if we can put them in something reusable, that saves a lot of plastic lids by each one of us on a weekly and monthly basis. So I think those are small steps, but they do make a difference. And I think the other piece is, is really thinking about our clinical environments. And we talked about that as well, to really look at our daily practices, the things that are used in our clinic. If we use styrofoam cups, consider not doing that. Think of this supply chain. Now you can make those changes. Um, other packaging that, that we use on a daily basis and things that have a lot of packaging on them, on them. advocate for supply chains that change that and that don't require the amount of packaging. Our shipping, we don't sometimes have to re require the amount of packaging we use for shipping. So all those things with our plastics make a difference. They make a plus, uh, difference in our, in our environment and how we're using our landfills and how we recycle and also in our aquatic life. So I think these are things that we can all do individually. And if we could do it cumulatively as a society, it will make a difference um, in, in our country and beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, Karen kind of nailed two of the ones that, that I'm most concerned about in terms of what I can do personally is reduce my use of single-use plastic and then also uh, reduce dependency on, on fossil fuels, so walking more, um, biking more. But I would also say that I, as someone who loves health policy and teaches health policy to students, you know, there's so much to be said for advocacy. If we all, you know, pressed our legislators at the national level to, to um, spend judiciously with the infrastructure bill that just got passed and has a lot of climate change stuff in it, but even more so will be in the Build Back Better bill, really pushing for environmental change, pushing for the United States to be a leader in, in global environmental initiatives. I think all of those things are important. But as Karen also mentioned, I think we often overlook as providers how much the local and the state um, legislators and, and decision makers impact um, our air and our water quality and our food quality and a lot of different in issues. So I would say too, people need to really pay attention to what's going on at the local and the state level, just as Dr. Hannah Tisha did in Flint, because that's where um, we're going to we're, where we're going to really be able, I think, to protect and, and advocate on behalf of our patients on environmental issues. And I also think that um, it's important to, to think about one of the things we talked about earlier is just uh, in awareness of how we um, go about looking at our water and air quality. And I think that's really key. And one of, and, and pesticides, which we talked briefly about, but I wanted to just, before we close, I wanted to make another point about that. In the special issue, there's an excellent article by Dr. Abby Alcon, which is actually original research that's published in a study that she's been involved in for many years. And that shows to our readers, um, a study that was done with preschool children and those uh, teachers in their environment their childcare workers, and they wore these pesticide bands for um, a period of time over the week. They had to leave them on all during the day and at night in their home environment and, and in the childcare setting. And, you know, all those of you who have toddlers or uh, preschool children and worked with that, you know how hard it is for them to leave something on for that period of time. But she actually got a fairly robust uh, sample size. You can read it in the article. And what was very interesting to Mary and I when we read this, and it's, it's again in the special issue, and oftentimes we don't want to read original research, but this is presented very clearly and tells us exactly what's in our environment with children. And they picked up seven different chemicals and pesticides that the children were exposed to in their home environment, and they were from a variety of home in environments across California. These were the, the child care centers across our state, and this would be examples in other states as well, and, and the adults. And as we know, the children in, in the study 
had a higher uptake of chemicals and pesticides during that study period than the adults did. And we, we know why as pediatric providers. They have um, you know, more skin area to absorb, more hand to mouth behavior. We know these things. And I began to learn them and really increased my thought about, oh my goodness, that that's absolutely true. So in, regardless of, of whether we live in a, a, uh, an apartment setting, um, in a rural setting, we can be aware of the products that we use or, or our landlords or, or other um, people that take care of our buildings use at, for any kind of pesticide um, reduction. Mary mentioned this earlier. And also just in, in yards and parks that we're a part of, that makes a difference. You know, we've had some national cases that have come up recently with some of our chemicals that are common in our environment. And over time for our children and grandchildren, we need to be aware of this and reduce those use of harmful chemicals in our environment. And we're also aware that that's affect our pollinators, our butterflies and our bees. We've heard many articles nationally recently about the reduction of those. And this is due to our overuse, all of us, of pesticides and chemicals. So um, yeah, check out that article and I think you'll find it really interesting. And it, it increased awareness even for Mary and I again about the amount of absorption difference between adults and children. And those are who we wanna protect uh, particularly. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the reader's feedback on that particular article. Well, this has been really great. Uh, such an important, uh, timely, and uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, one final question uh, for each of you. It's switching gears just a little bit. So on your journey to become a nurse practitioner leader, what one piece of advice was most impactful for you? For me, um, I was encouraged early, early on to find mentors and find a variety of mentors that had um, that were walking in paths that I had interest in. Um, so I had, you know, a mentor that was instrumental in my career um, as a as a practicing pediatric nurse practitioner, um, a mentor who was instrumental for me in terms of uh, pursuing my PhD and opportunities after that as a faculty member. And then also really following in the um, getting mentors who are interested in things like health policy, or if you're interested in becoming more involved at NAPNAP, to find um, people who've walked in that path before you, who are willing to serve as a mentor to not only give advice and feedback, but to be encouraging and to open doors for you. And uh, I know for me, I will be eternally grateful um, to the mentors who had such a big impact on my life. Karen, what advice do you have? Yeah, that it's very similar. I think Mary and I have both been very lucky to have um, good mentors. And I was been privileged to have several mentors. And at one point in my career, I actually ended up having a mentor who was the first one that had actually criticized my um, clinical and writing more than anyone else. And oftentimes we shy away from those mentors who make us uncomfortable. But if their reasoning is sound, then I think that's a point of growth for us. And that was, uh, I was a little ways into my career before I did that. It's not something that any of us would do in, early in our career. <laughs> but I've been privileged to have many mentors at several different important steps in my career and in my career journey. And they've advised me wisely um, and supportive friends and family. We all know how important that is. But I was also very privileged to meet Dr. Loretta Ford, founder of the nurse practitioner role who established the PNP role. And I wanna remind our listeners that the pediatric nurse practitioner role was the first pediatric, you know, first role of nurse practitioners in the country. And we as PNPs need to continue to be very proud of that. So I heard when I heard Dr. Ford speak on one occasion, 
her advice to NP leaders was this. She said, go for it. Don't have little dreams, go for the big stuff. In your career, look at the possibilities and dream big. <laughs> and I think that was just the best advice, even in my mid-career point to say, okay, you're right. Um, and we have to set our goals high, even if we don't reach them, I think we need to reach them. And sometimes family gets away, sometimes COVID gets in the way. Um, we never know what the obstacles are gonna be. But if you set your dream high, and if you go for it, and you're resolved, you will achieve it over the time in your career. So, so um, have patience for the journey, the same as having patience for advocacy and policy. And it's been such a joy to talk with all of you today. Well, thank you so much. Such excellent advice. I'd like to thank our guests today on Team Peds Talks. It has been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you both. It is such an important discussion and is a call to action on planetary health and climate change. As stated by Dr. Mary Chesney, the future is now. Thank you for listening in. Thank you for joining on this episode of Team Peds Talks focused on nurse practitioner leadership and career development. Please listen to our entire series, which launches episodes on Thursdays. The National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners has other Team Peds Talks podcasts to share with the pediatric healthcare community, including conversations on child health equity, child and adolescent mental health, and pediatric emergency care. Thank you for joining.